0: morning. Let's pray. God, you're good, and you are great, and you are greatly be praised. Uh, Thank you for this morning. God, thank you that your mercies are new today, and we can be glad and rejoice in you. And uh, just grateful that you hold all things together, that for those who are united to you by faith, United in your death, burial, and resurrection, God, you promise to never leave us nor forsake us, that you are an ever-present help in time of trouble. Uh, God, I thank you that you um, are a God who keeps every promise, that we can hang on to all of your past I dids, and we can hang on to your future I wills, and that we can walk by faith not by sight. Thank you for uh, the sermon series we're doing. God, thank you for um, just what we've been seeing in the passages on the Lord's Supper and I just pray, God, that uh, you give me the uh, uh, grace I need to be able to uh, preach the word this morning and I pray that you'd give the listeners uh, the grace to uh, receive it and uh, not just um, through the head intellectually Uh, But I pray, God, it would make it to our hearts and that we'd be changed and we'd be more in awe of your sacrifice, uh, the breaking of your body and the pouring out of your blood for us. We love you. We pray these things in the powerful and risen name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. God's people said, amen. Good Good morning. What's up? Glad to have you guys. The, uh, you probably heard the last service went like an hour and a half that 's why you 're like, going, okay, how long is this service going to last uh, we make we might go a little bit longer. I did cut out part of the sermon we 've got a lot of things going on um, but this is the uh, the second part part two of a truth you can touch uh, last week we talked about baptism today we 're going to talk about the lord 's supper and um, just a reminder, back four months or so ago, we talked as pastors about The Lord's Supper and how often we wanted to celebrate it. Um, Traditionally here we observe the Lord's Supper monthly before COVID and then really throughout COVID we got out of the rhythms. We didn't want to do it virtually and then we've been doing it probably every month and a half, two months. And so before we started uh, reinstituting a pattern we wanted to take a deep dive into scripture and try to understand what is both prescribed and what's not prescribed, what might be described. And um, I think I mentioned last week we read a, a great book together called A Truth You Can Touch by Tim Chester about baptism and communion, and then we've, um, we've just done a lot of reading, a lot of uh, praying, a lot of uh, just dialoguing together. And that's the, that's the reason we did these two sermons. We really started with the Lord's Supper, but we thought, you know, if, we, if we're going to teach on the Lord's Supper, we need to talk about baptism, because baptism comes before the Lord's Supper. In the same way that a wedding comes before an anniversary, have you been to a wedding recently? Anybody? Yeah. Been to a lot of weddings. Haven't been to one. Well, yeah. I guess we were North Carolina about three weeks ago. And at most wedding ceremonies, the bride and the groom recite their vows. And at some level, they express their mutual love and devotion for one another. That's what happens at a wedding. They make promises of devotion to one another, regardless. Of how their circumstances might change, from uh, um, thick and thin, uh, through life and death, they commit to no longer live as separate people, but as united as one flesh. What was his is now hers. What is was his is now what was hers is now his. They commit to stick with each other through thick and thin. And a public wedding ceremony with all its rituals doesn't establish the newlyweds' love and commitment to one another. It, however, does express and confirm publicly their love and devotion for one another. What also happens in a wedding ceremony is, or what should happen, is that that a single man and woman die, so to speak, to their singleness. And the married man and woman become born again, if you will into one flesh. Have you ever heard the downer statement, just wait, the honeymoon will wear off? Kind of a downer. Some truth in that. What that means is that the perfect wedding and the romantic honeymoon, after those things, you'll be living with someone who you don't fully recognize. You may not recognize them without their makeup. You might not like the way they manage their money. You may not like the way they hang the toilet paper. There's all types of things that you didn't know about the one you said I do to that are now um, obstacles that could could potentially have you grow apart. In our home, um, well, let me say this first of all. um, Marriage and baptisms are two ceremonies that personally I take very seriously because I've had people I've married— get divorced. I've had people that I've baptized renounce the name of Jesus. And it feels like a lot of pressure. And so I don't marry anybody unless they they submit to six to eight weeks of marriage counseling. I want to have a really, I want to have a high level of confidence that they know it's not just I do, but it's a continuing I do and I will. And it's even a, uh, more important with baptism that we, wanna, we want people to understand uh, the call to, the, to, to turn from their sin and to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and the call to walk in newness of life. So I've seen many marriages fall apart over the years. And oftentimes these marriages, well, I'll just say every time, they've lost the relational connection with one another. They spend less time With one another, physical time, they they spend less time affirming their commitment to one another. And they start to live separate lives with separate bank accounts, different hobbies, separate vacations, separate friends. And instead of growing together as one flesh, they grow apart. We've seen this over and over again when we see uh, parent centered marriages. We're all for for 18 years, the the focus is on the kids, and all of a sudden the kids leave. It's like, who are you? I grew apart over the last 18 years. In our home, it's kind of gross, but we hug, we hold hands. We say, I love you a lot. And it's become kind of a constant reflex. It's kind of rote, actually. And there might be some downside to it. But we say, I love you. And I'm not going anywhere. I have this ritual that I started with my kids. I don't know where I got it from. I'm sure I stole it from somewhere. But when my kids were young, and now I do this with my grandkids, I will say something like this. I have a four-year-old grandson, Oliver. And we just had Oliver over for sleepover two weeks ago. And as I was putting Oliver to bed, I said, Ollie, if there were millions of four-year-old boys in this world, Red hair, brown hair, blonde hair, black hair, blue eyes, green eyes, brown eyes, short, tall, good athletes, not so good athletes, like to read, don't like to read, and I could I could line them up and pick any one of them to be my grandson. Do you know who I pick? He goes, me, Papa. And we we do that a lot because there is so much so many um, insecurities. And this is actually going to be leading into the Lord's Supper because really the Lord's Supper is God's reminder of his promises to us. Yes, there is a certain covenant commitment we make back to him. But when we approach the Lord's Supper, um, he's the host, as you can hear about today, and he is um, reconfirming. It's a reconfirming ceremony of his unbreakable covenant to us. For years, on June 8th, my wife Nancy would uh, bring out this candle, um, and that we burned, I think we've missed two years and 42 years. And this is the candle that we had at our wedding. This is the color of my tuxedo. You can tell what era we got married. And we would light it, and then she would pour champagne uh, into these glasses, and we would like interlock our arms and we would drink it. And there was just a certain joy, a certain security of being reminded of her ongoing love and devotion to me, and my ongoing love and devotion to her. A wedding ceremony is a relational covenant between two perfect human, imperfect human beings. Water baptism, if you missed it last week, is, a, is like a wedding. It's a public demonstration and confirmation of a relational covenant with Jesus. Water baptism illustrates the reality that by faith you've been, uni- you've been united with Christ in his death, burial, and resurrection. The old man or woman is dead. And buried in the new creation is alive in Christ. The waters of baptism are a tangible and visible reminder of the spiritual reality that a person is being, that is being baptized has been born again. They're united with Christ. The waters of baptism represent the womb and the tomb. The water baptism is an outward sign of a what? Come on. Of an inward reality. Water baptism is an outward sign of an inward reality. Water baptism, we're, we're unashamedly credo-baptists here, which means, credo means uh, believe, that we baptize believers. And we, we see that all throughout Scripture, and I would encourage you to, um, to tune into last week's sermon, if you missed it, to learn more about where we stand on baptism. We have written... Um, I'll just stop right there. Um, there are there are certain criteria to be baptized. Um, if you raise your hand and say I want to be baptized, um, there's going to be a there's going to be a few questions. Um, only God knows the heart. But we want to baptize those that have incredible um, have a credible testimony. And the, the and there's three steps to that. The first one is is that do you acknowledge that you're a sinner, deserving the full wrath of God? Do you align with uh, the Apostle Paul in Romans who says, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Do you see that you're a sinner in need of a Savior? Number two, do you believe upon the cross to receive the grace of God for, for the salvation of your sins, forgiveness of your sins? And three, do you understand the call to walk in the newness of life? Not perfection, but a direction. In the same way you can't have a wedding anniversary without a, we- without a wedding, the Lord's Supper is for those who have been united to Christ by faith. The Lord's Supper is a stark reminder of our communion with the Lord and the church. And this is, a, this is not a neat, tidy, three-point sermon for those of you that are, um, that are outliners. There are three points, but it's going to be like uh, Waldo. You're going to have to look really hard to find them. I apologize. Uh, but I'm going, to, I'm going to remind them. Uh, it's, it's remember, it's examine, and it's receive. The Lord's Supper. Remember, examine, and receive. Where water baptism points me to my union with Christ, the Lord's Supper reminds me of my communion with Christ. Baptism is about union with Christ. The Lord's Supper is about communion with Christ. My ongoing communion with Christ. The Lord's Supper is a strengthening ordinance. It's in the Lord's Supper where we're reminded again and again of our union with Christ, and we're invited to taste again and again that the Lord is good. If baptism is like a wedding, the Lord's Supper is the reaffirmation of Christ's covenant love to those united to him by faith, his bride. Baptism is an act which the covenant is confirmed. The Lord's Supper is a covenant renewal ceremony. It reminds us of God's past I dids, his fulfilled promises, and his future promises I wills. It's a faith strengthening ordinance that helps us keep our eyes on Jesus, the author of our faith, and also the sustainer and finisher of our faith. The Lord's Supper expresses God's commitment to us, but it's also our commitment to Him. The Puritan Steve Sharnock said this In every repetition of communion or the Lord's Supper, by presenting the ordinance, God confirms His resolution to stick to His covenant. And by eating it, the receiver commits himself or herself to keep close to the condition of faith. The Puritan Edmund Colomy said, The Lord's Supper implies a covenant transaction between God and us and supposes a renewal of our vows to be the Lord's people. Baptism comes before communion. Baptism is the marriage. It's the illustration of the marriage. Spiritual baptism is the marriage Water baptism is the illustration of the spiritual baptism. The Lord's Supper is an illustration of our ongoing communion with the Lord. We're going to look at Luke 22 that Sarah read, and um, I would encourage you to open your Bibles now, chapter 22, verses 7 through 20. Um, If you don't have a Bible with you, or you don't have a phone with a Bible app on it, there are Bibles at the end of the rows, and if you happen to use one of those, it's on page 881. So we're going to be taking a look at the Last Supper where Jesus hosted a Passover meal for his disciples. And the Passover meal was the opening day of a seven-day feast called the the Feast of Unleavened Bread. And this Passover day was a a day of overflowing with joy and festivity. And at three o'clock on Passover, it was the time that they would start slaughtering the unblemished lambs. And the Passover meal, the lamb was carried without the blood into the homes, and the Passover meal was observed um, in these homes in the evening, celebrating that special occasion. And the lamb was roasted on a pomegranate spit, and the guests would assemble and recline around a table with the host at the head of the table. In Jesus' time, the Passover had gone beyond the Old Testament directives and had further accrued traditions in something we call the Seder, or the order of service. It was the host's responsibility, the host of the Passover's responsibility, to interpret the meal for his, his guests. So the host would, would talk about the bitter herbs, which reminded the Israelites of their 430 years of bitterness and slavery. It would remind them, The host would remind them of the stewed fruit with its color and consistency that represented the misery of making bricks in Egypt. And the roasted lamb would, would, uh, would bring forth a memory of the lambs that were slain and whose blood was put on the doorpost and then was eaten. Verse 7, Luke 22. Then came the day of unleavened bread on which the Passover lamb had to be sacrificed. So Jesus sent Peter and John saying, Go and prepare the Passover for us that we may eat it. They said to him, Where will you have us prepare it? He said to them, Behold, when you have entered the city, a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Follow him into the house that he enters, and tell the master of the house, the teacher says to you, where's the guest room where I may eat the Passover with my disciples? And he will show you a large upper room furnished, prepare it there. And they went and found it just as he had told them, and they prepared the Passover. We're not going to take time this morning to break down this seemingly covert operation, Why was their man carrying a jar? Why were they to follow him into this secret room? We're going to focus on the supper itself. That's what we're teaching on today. The the supper, its purpose, and its shape. So Luke reminds us several times, five times to be exact, in these purposes, that what they're celebrating in this Lord's Supper, or excuse me, this last supper, is the Passover meal. And the first Passover meal marked the final plague on Egypt and the deliverance of God's people. From slavery in Egypt. And it's, that's in Exodus 12, and I'm not going to read that. The Passover was a real event in which the Lord passed over the homes of the Israelites that were marked with blood of the unblemished lands and spared the lives of the firstborn. It also secured their exodus from slavery. This was a memorial meal, memorial meal, that was identity shaping, where the, where the Jewish people were, were reminded that they had been set apart to be God's covenant people. Passover was to, be continue, was to be taught and rehearsed as a statute forever, it says. I will read Exodus 12, verse 24 through 27. You shall observe this rite as a statute for you and your sons forever. And when you come to the, to the land that the Lord will give you, as he promised, you shall keep this service. And when your children say to you, what do you mean by this service? You shall say, it is a sacrifice of the Lord's Passover for he passed over the houses of the people of Israel and Egypt when he struck the Egyptians but spared our houses and the people and the people bowed their heads and they worshiped so Jesus and his disciples prepared to eat the Passover meal that evening after sundown in a furnished room and the reason that that the uh, the Uh, Luke brings out that it was in a furnished room is just to remind us this was a normal Passover celebration. They would organize the couches in a horseshoe type shape. The disciples, 12 in this case, one was a false disciple, Judas, would recline on the sofa toward the host, Jesus, who sat at the end of the table. And I want you to, as Jesus was at the end of the table and the disciples were leaning in on the couches, I want you to listen to the heart of Jesus in verses 14 through 16. And when the hour came, the hour to celebrate the the Passover, to eat the Passover, he reclined at the table and the apostles with him. And he said to them, I have earnestly or eagerly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I tell you, I will not eat it until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. Jesus was eager or earnest to enjoy this final Passover meal with his disciples before he gave himself unto death. Jesus had an intense longing for this hour with his disciples because of the, re- the revelation that he was going to make to them uh, uh, about the Passover meal, the fulfillment of the Passover meal. It would be a mind-blowing revelation of his life and his saving work. And he was going to forever transform the the Passover meal. And he couldn't wait to unpack it. The Last Supper that Jesus celebrated with his, ate with his disciples, became the Lord's Supper for us today and all believers since that first century. And it will be the the Lord's Supper until Jesus returns. And right out of the gates, he tells them that he looks forward to another supper, verse 16 and verse 18, when the kingdom of God is fulfilled or is fully come. In the same way that the Passover meal was a foreshadowing of the Lord's Supper, the Lord's Supper is not the end. It is a foreshadowing of a messianic supper at the great wedding feast. Listen to the sounds of the people gathered at the wedding feast. And if you know Jesus, you are going to be at this supper. Then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters, like the sound of mighty peals of thunder, crying out, Hallelujah, for the Lord our God, the Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and exalt and give him the glory, for the marriage of the Lamb has come, and his bride has made herself ready. It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, her the church, bright and pure, for the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. And the angel said to me, write this, blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the land. And he said to me, these are the true words of God. And if you have been united to Christ by faith, You've acknowledged your sin and turned to Jesus Christ that you will be at this wedding feast. And this is our great hope because this will be, we will feast in the house of Zion as the song goes. And the beauty of that is, is that we will be feasting with no more affliction, no more suffering, no more pain, no more death. And we'll be in the bodily presence of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. And that will be a great day. In verses 17 through 20, Jesus tells his disciples that the new and fulfilled meaning of this supper, and he he describes it with two cups and one bread. And Luke is the only one of the gospel writers that brings forth two cups. And what we're going to see here is cup, bread, and cup. Verse 17, and he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, this is when he he had prayed, he said, take this, And divide it among yourselves, for I tell you that from now on I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. In the first Seder, the first order of worship, the cup of fellowship, they would drink it right after the opening prayer. And the Seder prescribed individual cups. So if, if it was a typical Old Testament Passover meals and there was Jesus and 12 disciples, there would be 13 individual cups. And they would go around and pour into each of the cups. But what changed is that Jesus poured the wine into one cup, the cup of fellowship, and passed it around. You know, he did that to, to emphasize the communal aspect of the meal. The Lord's Supper is an illustration of our communion with Christ, with, with Christ but also with his body. You know, we. Um, we used to have a 24 hours of prayer, and we would meet physically up in the children's space. anybody remember that? Really awesome. The ladies would decorate it, and it would just be uh, low light and carpets, and and the prayer cards would be all over the place. And we would go in there for an hour, and we'd pray. And we used to have the 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 juice and the bread for you to just take as you're praying. Um, based on my study of Scripture and seeing the communal aspect of communion, I wouldn't do that again. Because the, the Lord's Supper is for the body of Christ. It's a, it a reminder of our, of our union with Christ individually and together. And that's what Jesus was doing when he took the cup of fellowship. You see, by, by Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection, he was knitting together a company of new people called the church who would be united with Christ together. And then we see in verses 19 and 20, we see the, the, the bread and the second cup. And in verses 19 and 20 are the words of institution, they call it. The institution of the Lord's Supper. And here it says this in verse 19, And he took bread, and when he had given thanks, He broke it and gave it to them, saying, this is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. According to the Seder, the bread was unleavened, and it was called the bread of affliction. It was a reminder that they didn't have time. The Israelites, after they were jetting out of Egypt, headed to the promised land, they didn't have time to make leavened bread. And this this bread represented the affliction that they experienced. In fact, sometimes the Jewish people over the years in this week of unleavened bread would quote Deuteronomy 16.3 and it says this, "You You shall eat no leavened bread with it, with the Passover meal. Seven days you shall eat it with unleavened bread, the bread of affliction. For you came out of the land of Egypt in haste, in a hurry, that all the days of your life you may remember the day when you came out of the land of Egypt, when you came out of the land of affliction. In taking the bread and breaking it, Jesus is saying that he is the bread of affliction. That this is my body that is afflicted or broken for you. This bread does not host the literal body of Jesus Christ like the Catholic Church believes. That Jesus is the host of the meal. He's not in the meal. Jesus is the host who invites us to the table and gives us the bread as a reminder of his body given for us. And as he held the body and said, this is my body which is given for you. And you can personalize it. It's for us, but it's given for you so that you can be brought into the body of Christ and be united with brothers and sisters in Christ. Jesus was afflicted in every way so that you will never taste the affliction of God's wrath. You might say, well, what about all the other affliction? What about the affliction of cancer? The affliction of a hard marriage? The affliction of a wayward child? The affliction of homelessness, of war? One day, the kingdom of God will be fulfilled, and we will eat the supper. The great messianic supper with no affliction. In perfect peace. And these promises, these last supper and Lord's Supper promises are for you who by faith have united with Christ. And he says, do this in remembrance of me. Don't say this in remembrance of me. Do this. There's something about coming to the table and knowing that Jesus is hosting us here. He's reminding us of our union with him and our ongoing communion with him. In verse 20, and likewise, the cup, the second cup, he took it after they had eaten, saying, this cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. The new covenant in my blood poured out for you. He is intentionally contrasting the Old, Old Testament sacrifice of lamps. The ongoing yearly sacrifice of lambs with the once and for all sacrifice shed blood of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins. The weakness of the Old Covenant was that the people could not keep the law. And they kept trying to keep the law rather than trusting in the Messiah, the promised Messiah believing upon God. The beauty of the new covenant is that the, the keeping of the promises, the keeping of the law, is not dependent upon you and me. It's dependent upon Jesus. Jeremiah 31 says this, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. Not like the covenant I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them, and I will write it on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. Not as a result of our obedience, because of the the obedience of the perfect Jesus Christ. And they shall no longer, each one teach his neighbor and each his brother, saying, Know the Lord. But they shall all know me, from the last of them to the greatest. The least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sin no more. And I'll say it again. The new covenant is not dependent upon uh, you and me keeping our promises. It is dependent upon Jesus keeping his promises. The Last Supper that Jesus ate with his disciples instituted the ordinance of the Lord's Supper that has been central to the worship service in the church from the very first church gathering in Acts chapter 2, verse 42. After Peter's spirit-empowered sermon, 3,000 people believed upon the gospel of Jesus Christ. It says that they believed and they repented. And then they were baptized. And we're told in Acts 2.31 that 3,000 souls were added that day to Christ's church. These people were, they were a new people living in a new community with, with different desires and priorities. And then in Acts 2.42, we witness the first gathering of the saints. And, and the, in their participation, we see four activities or four elements in the gathering of the saints we see the preaching of the word, we see prayer, we see the breaking of bread, and we see fellowship. And the wording here suggests that each of these activities occurred when they gathered. And one of the key things the early church devoted themselves to was the breaking of bread. And we know the breaking of the bread to be the Lord's Supper And we know it to happen in the context of the church community. And I think there's strong evidence, not prescribed, but a pattern or description in Scripture of a weekly observance of the Lord's Supper in the New Testament. Because immediately after they were added 3,000 souls in the church, we see the Lord's Supper listed as a central piece of Christian worship. And I've said this already, at WCC, we've done it monthly since this church was established in 2001. And we did it monthly because, it, because Scripture is not explicit about how often to do it. And during COVID, as I mentioned, we got out of the habit. So we said, before we jump back in, let's, let's do a deep dive into Scripture and see what we can learn. And we came out of this study with a conviction, a a minimum conviction that we need to celebrate, we need to observe, participate in the Lord's Supper more often. You see, truth leaks. We need strengthened, not only by the, the, the word, but by the elements. I want you to notice the wording of 1 Corinthians 11.20, uh, where Paul is actually admonishing the church um, for not being unified, but he says this, he says, when you come together is it not the Lord's Supper that you eat? And it's widely, degreed, widely agreed in Christendom that the terminology come together is used as a technical term for gathering in the church. When you come together. And this wording suggests that when they gathered they ate a meal which they intended to be the Lord's Supper. And though they were, in in 1 Corinthians chapter 10 and 11, they were abusing the supper, their practice is to celebrate the Lord's Supper each time they gathered. Even even the wording in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 25 says this, As often as you drink, we should do it often. There's, There's no disagreement in Christendom. But coming out of COVID and all that we struggle with in this world today, uh, we determined we need to be strengthened by a tangible illustration of the gospel on a regular basis. Gordon fee says this about the verse It says as often as you drink he says this this addition in particular implies a frequently repeated action, suggesting that from suggesting that from the beginning the the last Supper. From the beginning, the Last Supper was for Christians, not an annual Christian Passover, but a regularly repeated meal in the honor of the Lord, hence the Lord's Supper. Jesus earnestly desired to eat the Last Supper with his disciples. We too should earnestly desire to eat the Lord's Supper until the kingdom of God comes. We participate in the Lord's Supper as a reminder of God's of God passing over our sin and his promise to consummate the kingdom of God and the feast that he will have with us in the house of Zion. We eat the bread and the juice as reminders that we rely on his grace afresh each and every day because his grace not only saves us, it sustains us. So at WCC we're going to be observing the Lord's Supper on a weekly basis going forward. And I know that many of you are excited And I know that many of you are hesitant. And we've kind of ran this up the flagpole with many of you over the last couple of months. And the hesitancy comes from being worried that this weekly observation will become rote and will cause you to take it for granted. And can I say this? May it never be so. The Apostle Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, he says, that The gospel that you heard, the gospel that you believed, is the gospel that you stand in. And the Lord's Supper is the, the clearest and most poignant uh, expression of the gospel of Jesus Christ that he has given us in the church. The supper is a weekly opportunity to be reminded of your union with Christ. And that even in the midst of hardship and suffering and various difficulties, He is an ever-present help in time of need. We practice communion, resting in the finished work of Christ. We live in a culture that is fiercely individualistic. And we need to practice Belonging together. The family that eats together. Stays together. So when we're weary. Doubtful. Forgetful. Fearful. Guilt ridden. Proud. Anxious. We come to the table. We receive the bread And the juice as a reminder of God's covenant love and communion with us. When we approach the table, we imagine that it's Jesus, the host, that is handing you the bread and the juice. And he's handing it to you as a covenant reminder of his forever love for you. And that he promises never leave you nor forsake you. Jesus is the host that invites us to the table because he wants to have ongoing communion with you. I've got a couple of reminders before we jump in. There's a proper manner to take the elements. The Apostle Paul says in 1 Corinthians 11 to not partake in an unworthy manner. First, I want to say this is that the table is for Sinners. for sinners like me and you. Sinners who have been saved by grace. Sinners who have turned from their old way and have put their faith and trust in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of their sins. That we're not to come to the table in an unworthy manner means that we're to examine ourselves is what Paul says. Not examine yourself to see if you're in the faith. There are times that maybe some of you may need to do that but to examine yourself. This is, a, this is a communal, a church-wide ordinance. And what he's saying is, is that in the, in the one loaf of the body of Christ, is there any unreconciliation? Are you harboring any bitterness to any one person in the body of Christ? Do you need to forgive someone? Is there someone that you know that you've sinned against? Is I was like the, the Spirit of God with no condemnation as I was um, studying this over the last week brought to mind somebody that I had sinned against. And I actually thought I was justified in the sin. And I just I just didn't have an opportunity to get together so I wrote an email in this body. And so there, there's... There's nothing that matters more to our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ in his church than unity in the church. Because we have a witness. And our greatest witness is unity in the body of Christ. They will know we are Christians by what? Our love for one another. So he takes that seriously. So he says, examine yourself. Don't beat yourself up. There's now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Examine yourself. Go to a person. And maybe you don't have the opportunity to go to a person today, here, but go to a person in your heart. Say, God, yes, thank you. And I will get on that this afternoon. The next thing I want to say is that the the table is fenced. There's three tables. And these tables are for those who have been united to Jesus Christ by faith. If that's not you, if um, you've not believed upon the gospel and turned from your sin, first I want to say, I'm stoked you're here. So glad you're here. And I would just encourage you to observe and see how a family eats together. And then when you believe upon the Lord Jesus Christ... For the forgiveness of, forgiveness of sins, this is for you because it's a reminder of your union with Christ and your ongoing communion with Him. So, the Lord's Supper is a stark reminder of our ongoing communion with the Lord and with His church. So, remember, examine, and receive. Remember your union with Christ and your ongoing communion with Him. Remember all of His past I dids and His future I wills. Remember, you've been purchased and set apart, and you belong to another. Examine your heart. Is there anything in you, anything you're harboring against another believer in the body? And receive with gladness. So we're going to partake, and there's just some instructions, and we're going to get used to this over time because we're going to do it every week, but I want to say first and foremost is that we've got, I learned this because we had a four-hour staff meeting. We tried to work through the flow. And like we just, we're like bumping into each other and everything else, but the, it's counterclockwise. So we've got three tables, and each table is going to be approached from the right, from the right, from the right, from the right. So you'll come out of your section counterclockwise, 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 counterclockwise and don't run upstream. If it doesn't work, we'll have next week to work on it again. If it doesn't work next week, you need to examine yourself. Let's see what's up. So that's a little bit of instructions. And we're doing something different um, here today because um, we have a tradition, um, as I hope you've heard about by now, is on the uh, 24 hours before um, Saturday morning, next Saturday morning, Passover, not Passover, uh, Palm Sunday weekend, starting at 8 a.m. on Saturday, um, finishing at 8 a.m. on Sunday. Next week we have 24 hours of prayer. And this is a great opportunity to bring our requests together as one body before the before the uh, the throne of grace so um, grab a card or two fill it out if you haven't already um, when you fill out a card or two come counterclockwise put your uh, prayer request uh, in the basket um, take the gluten free bread it's only gluten free um, if you feel like you're uh, like too judgmental to take gluten-free bread. You can bring your own bread next time. Um, actually, you can't. Um, there's gluten-free bread and there's juice, so uh, just come up and take that. Take it back to your seats, Don't, and we're going we're gonna, to uh, participate together. Um, did I miss anything? Uh, God, thank you, that, you um, that this is all about you. This is a covenant renewal ceremony. God, we're reminded of your everlasting covenant that is made in your shed blood. And God, I pray that as we approach the table, that we would be reminded of your covenant love for us as we take the bread and the juice. And God, I pray that we would be reminded of the the communion that we have with you, that you're a God who made yourself known by taking on flesh. And I thank you that we can know you, that we can have a personal relationship with you. So, God, thank you for this ordinance. Uh, Thank you that we get to uh, be ones who um, um, have received the benefits of your broken body and your poured out blood. We love you and we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.